Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. I'm really excited to be here tonight to share. Um, the, we're, we're moving on in the series we've been in the middle of called Hashtag Asking for a Friend. And tonight's topic is a big one. Um, if, I, a few of you may have heard uh, me uh, speak last week on this same topic in Glenelg. And it, it would have been up on the podcast, except it was way too long, and they haven't cut it, not really. Um, but it, it isn't on the podcast yet. Um, but we've got some exclusive uh, content for North Adelaide. Um, I didn't actually mention this last week at Glenelg. <clears throat> um, some of the questions that you guys asked that prompted us to choose this topic, and, and the title uh, for tonight's um, message is, If God is in Control... If God is in control, then why bother? If God is in control, then why bother? And we got that title and that topic from some of the questions you guys asked. Questions like, um, if God is sovereign, do I have free will? Um, What about predestination? Um, How far does God's sovereignty extend over suffering and evil and politics? Um, How do I grow? in prayer as a spiritual discipline? Why does God heal some and not others? How do we find the will of God when there are so many good things to do? Um, Now, a spoiler alert, I'm not going to answer most of those questions. I'm going to give kind of a broad overview of where I think the Bible gives, or what the Bible says about this whole idea of if, of God being in control. Is that even a biblical idea? And we're going to look at that today. Um, and, and then for some of these more specific applications, this is a great week for you guys to get along to your DGs and, and ask the question, bring the questions that you have um, into those settings. If you don't know what a DG is, that's a discipleship group. We have several of them that meet in different places through the week. And so if you'd love to, we'd love for you to be uh, a part of those if you're not one in one already. And so you can come talk to me about that afterwards or talk to somebody around you and you can get along to a DG. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and then we're going to jump into it. Lord, thank you so much that, we, that you are here um, with us, that there is absolutely nowhere that we can go um, and be away from you. Lord, that your, your, your presence fills the entire uh, universe and beyond, Lord, and we, we ask that you now, um, be, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would open our ears and our eyes, that we would hear um, your word, Lord, and that as a result, Lord, our hearts would be moved uh, to worship, to trust, to obey, um, to, to boldness. Lord, we ask these things knowing that without you, without your power, without your equipping, none of these things are possible. So we, we ask in that, in your, in your name and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. If God is in control, then why bother? Why do we make any effort to obey? Why do we make effort to pray? It, you know, why do we try and figure out what God wants us to do with our lives if he's already written the script, and we're just sort of kind of letting go and, and letting God. Um, if God has already decided who gets healed and who doesn't, then why do we, why do we pray? If God's already decided um, 
who gets saved and who doesn't, and why do we um, stick our necks out to share the gospel? Um, if God has already decided um, who wins the, the, the football game or who gets the parking space, then why should we pray about these things either? So I'm going to start out by paraphrasing an idea that is found in J.I. Packer's classic book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It was a book written in the 1950s for college students. Um, and he starts out by saying that we Christians, speaking very broadly, uh, uh, you know, Christian people, tend to believe that God is in control of the universe. We might disagree over the details of how it works out, but we all tend to believe what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, which is that God upholds or carries along the universe by the word of his power, that he upholds all things, he sustains all things. We're not deists. We don't believe that God created the world in six days and then went on a holiday. He's still actively involved in the world, working through the laws of nature and physics, working through prayers. So how do we know that we believe this? How do we know we believe that, we, that God is in control? Well, we pray. You pray. I hope. I mean, if you think about it, think about somebody that you know in your life that is not a Christian, and you would very much like them to believe in Jesus and to receive his love and forgiveness. You know, and I know inherently, that you don't have the power to, to speak to a person who has a, a hard, closed-off heart and make it soft and pliable and teachable. You don't have the power to take someone who the Bible says is, is dead in transgressions and sins and bring them to life. You don't have that power, and so what do you do? You pray and ask God to step in and to overrule with his will the will of this person that you love and you're praying for. Same thing is true if, if you know someone who is sick or maybe you, it's you yourself have, um, are struggling with an, with an illness or a condition and you know that you don't have, the, you know, you've sought out medical uh, opinions and, and procedures and you know that there's a limit of what medicine can do for you. You, you can't heal yourself. You can't heal your friend. So what do you do? You pray and you ask God, the creator of DNA, the creator of viruses, to step in and intervene, to do something that only he can do. That, that's how we, we know that we all tend to believe in some shape or form that God is in control, that he has power and the ability to act either according to the laws of nature or against the laws of nature. We pray. But how is it that God acts? Does he act, can he act independently of us? Or does he wait for us to ask before he steps in? Do we sort of give him permission? And do your choices actually matter? Do your choices matter? Are the choices that you make real choices? Or have they been determined in advance in such a way that you had really no choice about something as mundane as what you ate for breakfast this morning? Humans have wrestled with these questions from the very beginning. We wonder in what sense we are actually in control of our lives. How much freedom do we have? 
And so some people think that everything in life is up to luck or fate. Um, others believe that everything is up to God or the force or something that is acting on you, and so your freedom that you think you have is actually an illusion. We can't really understand how God acts. We know He's a personal God. We, we know He acts because we pray, but we just don't always know how that all works. So at the very beginning, my hope is to, in, in speaking this, to help you avoid two wrong ways of thinking. If you can think about walking down a, a fairly narrow, not overly narrow, but a fairly narrow road, and on either side of the road there are two deep ditches. Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're walking or, or, you know, say you're riding a bicycle, you could perhaps kind of ride a little bit too close to this one, and you, you notice that, the, and then you, you, what do you do? You can overcorrect and then end up in the ditch over here. And that often happens in this whole question. And so I want to sort of define these, what are these ditches for you? And hopefully this will help you know, because some of us, um, based on our, perhaps our theological or church background, perhaps on just our personalities, we tend to veer towards one side or the other in this question. So the ditch on, on this side, so on your left, is uh, fatalism. And fatalism, is the, it's related to the word fate, it says that either God or fate is the cause the only cause of everything that happens, good, evil, life, death, the choices that you make, they might appear to be real choices, but in fact, they're not. In no way are the choices that you make meaningful. Freedom is an illusion. And there are those who perhaps could get there from the Bible, from a fairly selective reading of the Bible. Um, one verse that often comes into this discussion is it found in Proverbs 16, verse 33, and it says this, the lot is cast into the lap. So that's like a dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So in other words, you flip a coin, and whether it lands on one side or the other, that decision was made, um, you know, before the world was created, and there's really nothing that is left to chance. Um, a big problem, however, because there's something about that that sounds true. I mean, it is in the Bible, so it is true. But what does it actually mean in context? A problem with fatalism is that there are a whole stack of other passages in the Bible that tell us that our choices, that your choices, really do matter. For example, repent and believe the gospel. Uh, those are the words of Jesus and the apostles found all throughout the New Testament. It's telling you to repent and believe the gospel uh, with the assumption that if you do repent and you do believe the gospel, that the consequences, the result will be good. And if you don't repent and you don't believe the gospel, you will perish. Jesus said that. And so fatalism doesn't take this kind of thing into account. I don't know if you've heard of a guy called William Carey. William Carey is often referred to um, as the father of Protestant missions and global church planning. He, um, he lived in England over 200 years ago, 
And when he was a young adult, he had a young family, and he felt called by God to go to the other sail to the other side of the world, which was like, would take months, um, and, and plan his life in India in order to preach the gospel to those who had never heard. Um, and he, to, to do that, he needed the support of his church and others there back in England. And so he famously, he kind of approached some of the movers and the shakers in his church, and he said, you know, would you support me to take my family and go preach the gospel in India? And sort of, he was sort of surprised by their response, which was essentially this, young man, sit down. If God wants to save the heathen, that was the word in the day, the heathen in India, then he'll do it without your help or ours. I mean, you've got a family, you've got kids. How, how could you think about putting them in danger or putting them in a risky situation where they could lose their lives because God can step in like he did with the apostle Paul. He could, you know, give visions and dreams. Well, he doesn't need you. If God is in control, then sit down and take it easy. These guys had fallen into the ditch of fatalism. Eleven out of the twelve of Jesus' first disciples, the ones who heard his words and who spent, who walked with him on earth, eleven out of twelve of them were tortured and killed for preaching the gospel to people who had never heard it. If that didn't matter, if it wasn't necessary in some way, if it wasn't significant, then why did they do it? Why did they expose themselves to such risk? Why didn't they just stay home? knowing and believing in faith that God will work it all out in the end. So that's fatalism over here. On the other side, we have a ditch called open theism. Open theism says that God has given over control of the complete control of the world to angels and human beings, and that we are thus primarily responsible for everything that happens in history. God has on purpose limited what he is able to know. The future, in fact, is not knowable. Um, it's determined by, only by the choices that we make, and that, therefore we're totally free. It also helps them to say that no way has God willed or allow, even allowed anything evil to happen because God didn't see it coming. At various points, God will step in, miracles, other ways, to ensure that his ultimate purposes are fulfilled, that Christ will triumph, that the kingdom of God will be established. And that happens according to the, by the choices that you and I make. We pray, he responds. We don't have because we don't ask. We suffer because we live in a broken world full of sin and death, but God can intervene if we invite him to do so. But unfortunately, open theism, like fatalism, it crashes on the rocks of the Bible, wherein we read over and over again that God works all things, even difficult things, even evil things, for the good of those who love him, Romans 8. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Joseph if you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Joseph was a young man who was betrayed by his brothers, 
who were jealous of him, and they sold him into slavery. They treated him cruelly and condemned him to a horrible fate of, of human trafficking. And he, as the story unfolds, Joseph is elevated to the highest position of authority in Egypt, and his brothers have to come and bow before him to save their own lives, and they assume that he is going to work revenge on them. He's going to get even for what they did. And Joseph says no. See, as for you, you intended it. You chose it. You meant it freely for evil. But God, he intended it. He meant it. He ordained it for good. Who sold Joseph into slavery? Well, his brothers did, and they were guilty. Who sold Joseph into slavery? Well, God did, but for an entirely different reason. You see, the same Bible that tells us that we have choices to to repent and believe and obey and that those choices are real and that they're significant also tells us that God ordains even evil things, even our evil choices for His good, for His glory. In the end, open theism is a burden that's far too heavy for us to carry. We need a God whose power, who is able, His power is made perfect in weakness, whose will can override my will. We need a God whose plan is, we know, we are certain will be accomplished regardless of the choices that we make. If you thought that when you woke up this morning that everything that was going to happen today was, dependent, was predetermined by God, that nothing that you did, no choice that you make was a real choice, then you, you wouldn't probably have a lot of motivation to get up. On the other hand, if you woke up this morning and thought that everything that you are going to do today, everything in the world around you is dependent on you and the choices and the ability and the consistency and the loyalty and faithfulness and inherent goodness of human beings, you probably also would not want to get out of bed in the morning because that's not a very comforting thought. The Bible does not give us, and this frustrates some of us, doesn't give us an extended philosophy lecture on how these two things work together, how God's control or if his providence, if you like, works together with our ability to make choices, our agency. That's what we're essentially talking about in philosophical terms. It's how, do, how does God's providence, some people use the word sovereignty, I think providence is a slightly better term, how God's providence works together with our agency. We don't, you know, the Bible doesn't spell it out. In fact, even Paul, the Apostle Paul, recognized that this is a tough question. He recognized, and so he, he writes this in Romans 9. He says, you, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, if even my sinful, flaky choices are in some way affected by God and God's will, then how can he blame me for making those choices? Why, how can he find fault with me? And how does Paul respond? He does not respond with a philosophy lecture. This is how he responds, and this will be profoundly unsatisfying to some of you. Romans 9 verse 20, 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? In other words, you're just going to have to live with it because God's providence and our agency, they do coexist. They are compatible. In other words, God is in control and you are responsible for the choices that you make. God is, we have to believe in faith from what we read in Scripture that God is both totally just, that He's totally merciful, that He's infinitely wiser and more powerful than you and I. What we have to do is not look for a philosophy lecture because it's not there, but instead we go to narrative, we go to stories. How, Like I, I alluded to the story of Joseph earlier where we see this picture of how God's providence and how agency work together for good. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time tonight. And we're going to, if you have your Bible, and I hope you have something that you can look at, you can open up and follow along to the book of Acts, book of Acts chapter 3, um, chapters 3 and 4. And we're going to, we're going to be looking at this story of in, in, it's, it's a very long story, so I'm not going to read the whole text to you because it would take a long time, but we're just going to be sort of walking through it, making a few observations along the way. But you can be thinking about these, things, these questions of God's providence and agency in your own life as well because that's where really this hits home for us. When you see how God works and how the, um, these early Christians also worked, um, you can think, in what way is this similar to the way that God is working in your life or in your world or in your community? Because there, there are analogies. They are, they are, it is similar. God does not change. And so the way that he works in Scripture is the way that he works today. So we're going to look at Acts 3. Now, I'll give you just kind of the background. In Acts 3, Peter and John, Peter and John were Two, kind of two, the two of Jesus' inner circle, who of the 12 disciples, they were kind of the two that were, they weren't appointed as leaders, but they're very, they're very much the central figures of the early church. And here they are in this story in Acts 3, they're on their way to the temple. Why the temple? Because that's where these early Christians, and there were these, all these new Christians, they'd just become Christians, just become believers, had just been filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, and it says at the end of chapter 2 that they were going every single day to the temple to be together to, with other believers and to worship God. And so here are Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple, and they meet in the gate, blocking the door, you know, to get in, um, a man begging. And it says this man had been, he was begging because he, he was unable to walk, and there was no, you know, Centrelink or any other support in that day. And so he's begging. And um, instead of giving him money, though, Peter says to him in verse 7, in verse 7, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's a pretty bold thing to say. Um, and then it says that Peter took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. This is the same Peter that when Jesus was around, he, you know, Jesus says, man, you want to come to me? Just jump out of the boat and walk on water. And he did, and he starts to sink. Same guy. 
here he meets this man who ha- is unable to walk, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and, and, and grabs him by the hand, and fully expects that he's going to be able to walk, and he does. Um, and leaping, it says, this is the man who was healed, and leaping up, <clears throat> he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him and were filled with wonder and amazement. Now, notice this man who got healed. Notice who he doesn't start to praise. He does not start to praise Peter. Who does he praise? He praises God because Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He knew, Peter knew, that only God can do that. Only God can intervene and suddenly, immediately, without any medicine of any sort, without any magic tricks, take a guy who's, not, who's never been able to walk and make him walk. He counteracts the very laws of nature. And this is a man who God created. This is a man who God knew, he loved, and he cared for through 40 years of disability. And right here in this moment, he, he heals him. And you, get, you skip over to chapter 4, verse 22, you find out that he was over 40 years old. Um, this is very similar to the man that Jesus healed who was blind from birth. We, that's in John chapter 9. And, and everybody's asking, well, they, they ask, well, you know, why was, he, um, well, why was he born this way? Why was he born blind? Did he sin? Did his mom and dad sin? Is that why, is this a, did he reap what he sowed in some way? And Jesus says, no. He was born this way so that, so that God might be glorified on that day. See, here, this is when we talk about God being in control, we're not just saying God is able to heal, but here we see that God was, I mean, God was able to heal for the first 40 years of this man's life. He could have healed him when he was 20, and he would have been able to get married, maybe have a family, and, and yet he waited till this man was 40 because in that moment, on that day, Peter and John were passing through to go to the temple, and God chose that moment and that day to get glory for himself, and he, the man was perfectly healed. Thousands, hundreds are drawn to worship and praise God in that moment that God had ordained. I, I don't know, maybe like if, if you're like this man, you've been waiting on God to act in your life or in the life of someone you know for years, for decades. But because God is in control, because the Bible teaches us that God is in control, you can trust Him at all times. You can trust Him at all times. I said this at Glen Elg last week, and I want to clarify what I meant by this. I said, nothing that has ever happened to you is an accident. And what I mean by that, because I know that can be a, a challenging thing to really think about. I don't mean by saying that, that everything that's ever happened to you is good. Everything that's ever happened to you is praiseworthy. That nothing has ever happened to you is that you shouldn't mourn over anything, you shouldn't cry about anything, you shouldn't lament over anything because, you know, it was all part of God's plan. That is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that God didn't take a holiday at the very moment that you asked Him to intervene in your situation. He is in control at all times and therefore you can trust Him at all times. 
There's not a single detail of your life that God is not aware of. That you might know Him, that you might fear Him, that you might receive His grace, that you might pray, that you might be dependent on Him. Psalm 139 is a beautiful um, picture. Nothing about you is hidden from God. Every joy, every pain, everything. Verse 16 of that psalm says that every single day that you will live has already been written down in a book. God has already planned it in advance. That's why Jesus says, you can't worry your way into a longer life. You can't. Not a, you know, who, by worrying, Jesus said, can add a single minute to his life. And we're going to get to our responsibility in a minute, because some of you are thinking, whoa, that sounds like fatalism. We're getting close to that ditch, and we are, and we're going to come back to it over here in a minute. You are responsible, I'm responsible to care for your physical health. God works through your choices, your genetics, your family history to bring about the number of days ordained for you. But listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verses 29 to 31. I think you've probably heard this verse, this passage before, but Jesus asked this hypothetical question. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, these are the small, inexpensive, relatively valueless birds. And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground. In other words, not one of them will die apart from your father. Apart from God's knowing, seeing, planning. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are clearly of more value than many sparrows. In other words, if God has granted a set number of days to a relatively small and invaluable creature, then he has done that much and more for you. How can we not then trust him with every detail of your life, even the the date of your death? The Bible reassures us that God is in control of it all over and over again because it's so easy to, to succumb to fear and worry and anxiety. And he says, fear not. God's got this. We find that in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it's right through. God's got this. And one concept that's helped me to, to both understand the Bible and worry less is what theologians call concurrence. And this is kind of a big word, concurrence. The, the theologian Wayne Grudem defines concurrence like this. He says, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Concurrence teaches us that God is at work at everything that happens, even your choices. He sustains the universe and every creature in the universe in such a way that they are acting according to their own properties. What I mean is this. God created water to be wet, and it is. God created rocks to be hard, and they are. He created you to have agency to have the ability to make significant choices between good and evil. 
And so you do. And we'll see in a minute that people like you and me, we freely chose to kill Jesus. And we're responsible for it. And yet, the Jesus' death on the cross is the one thing in history, if you, if you disagree with anything else in the, in the area of God's sovereign intervention in the world, you can say at the very least, God caused Jesus to die on the cross because it's, the Bible says it, Old Testament, New Testament, again and again and again, and we'll get there in a second. It is true that you chose, well, you may have chose, to freely respond to the gospel. And it is also true that every one of God's sheep whose names are written in the book of life will respond to his voice. Not one of his sheep will be lost. God's will, his providence, and your choices, your agency, they operate concurrently, not in opposition. So let me go back for a second to the example of your physical health. We know from decades of research that if you inhale tobacco smoke, you will likely die sooner than if you didn't inhale. We know this. We also know that the number of days that you will live has been set by God. The doctrine of concurrence says that God uses all your choices. You're inhaling, you're not inhaling, you're exercising, you're not exercising, you're you know, eating bacon, not eating bacon, whatever, as, as, along with your genetic makeup, along with the environment around you, all of these things God uses to bring about the set number of days that he has written down for you. But because you don't know how many days you're going to live, it is right and good to make choices that are what we would call healthy choices, to steward, to take care of the body that he has given you. And it's also wrong to worry about the day you're going to die, because to worry is to totally reject God's control over your life. It's to fall into this ditch over here, you see? For you to say, well, God's already determined when I'm going to die, so I can do whatever I want. I can indulge in anything. That's to fall in, that's over here, that's the ditch over here, whereas to say, you know, um, I'm, I'm so nervous and I'm going to, every, every supplement, every diet, every vitamin, I'm just going to spend, you know, 20% of my disposable income on trying to live longer, that's the ditch over here, if it makes sense. If you make a reasonable effort to look after yourself, but end up with poor health for some other reason, like genetics, you can know because of what the Bible says about God's sovereign care and providence over your life that the heat of his love has not cooled for you one degree. English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said it this way. He said, the Christian believes God to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. Because God is in control, trust Him always. Now, because your choices matter, repent and believe the gospel. Getting back to the story here in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were convinced that it was the power of God that healed this man. They were the means by which the healing came. But what did they start to do? 
What did they start to do as soon as the healing happened? They did not go off and get a contract to have a healing ministry on TV. What did they do? They started preaching the gospel. They started preaching the gospel, and because they've got this captive audience of all these people standing around, literally with their jaws on the floor going, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And that's what they did. And here's how he starts his sermon. Chapter 3, verse 16. If you want to um, write this down, um, you know, this is under the, t- under the heading of Jesus and be, or, or the early church and seeker-sensitive sermons. Here's verse 16. You killed the author of life. That's how he starts his message. Who God raised from the dead. It's intense. You killed Jesus. But then he goes on, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold, what God told in advance by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he, God, has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice what happened to Jesus was foretold in advance by the prophets. God raising Jesus from the dead, the cross, the resurrection, these were not afterthoughts. They were spoken of, written down hundreds of years before they happened. These things were unavoidable. I mean, Jesus, how many times did Jesus tell his own disciples, it is written that the Son of Man will suffer and then raise, be raised again after three days. He told, and they did not have a clue what he was talking about. But it was written. It was unavoidable. In verse 17, Peter acknowledges that the ones who conspired to crucify Jesus, they didn't know what they were doing. They acted in ignorance. What does he mean? It doesn't mean that they were ignorant of putting a man on the cross, that what, oh, you know, what's going to happen? They knew that you you nail a guy to a cross, he's going to die. They knew that. He did not mean that they were ignorant of the fact that Jesus claimed to be God or that he claimed to be the Messiah, the chose the promised one. That's why they put him there, because they thought he was blaspheming. That's not what they were ignorant. So what does he mean when he said they acted in ignorance? Their ignorance was that they were conspiring to kill Jesus, but What they didn't know is that they were actually carrying out God's plan. That's what they were ignorant of. And that's why he says they acted in ignorance. Verse 18 says that God fulfilled this. What was written, God brought it about to fulfill his plan to rescue people from the curse of death. They killed Jesus because they were evil. God refused to spare Jesus because he is infinitely good. How good is God here? In verse 19, Peter says, this is what you need to do. He's looking into the eyes of the very people who weeks earlier had shouted, crucify him. And he says, repent. Repent. He doesn't, no fire and brimstone, no condemnation. He just says, repent, that your sins might be blotted out. That is grace. That is the heart of the gospel. The very people who nailed Jesus to the cross. The Son of God. You killed the author of life. And you now have the opportunity and the gift to be able to repent. That your sins would be forgiven. That times of refreshing would come from the Lord. Whose son you just killed. He wants to forgive you. 
That's amazing. Your choices matter, even evil choices. And so now, repent, believe the gospel, the free gift of grace for you. Enter into the very presence of the Father who gave His Son to be slaughtered for your freedom. In our experience, from our perspective, we do have control over our choices. We choose to believe. We choose to disbelieve. We choose to love. We choose to hate. We choose where we live and if and who we'll marry. We map out our career paths. And we're responsible for the choices that we make in all those areas. Because our choices matter, we can't be passive about these things. Let go and let God is not a thing. We, we have to make active steps to obey God's will and to discern. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. And he will answer that prayer. Because our choices matter, we can never take a passive approach to sanctification, to becoming more like Jesus. Sin, it says, is crouching at your door, and by the grace of God, we have the means to stand up and put a spear between its eyes. Because your choices matter, repent and believe the gospel. Moving on into Acts chapter 4, some of the leaders didn't like the fact that they were being accused by these you know, ordinary, uneducated men of murder. So what did they do? They threw them in jail. And then Peter, again, full of the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He start praying, God, please open the prison door so I can get out because I want to go home. What does he do? He starts preaching the gospel. That's what happens when you're full of the Holy Spirit, evidently. You start preaching the gospel. It's almost as if he was compelled and the word that Luke, the narrator of this account, uses is the word boldness. It's three times in chapter 4. When the Holy Spirit infuses an ordinary person like you with humble confidence in the gospel and the courage to obey, you get boldness. Verse 13 of chapter 4, we read this. Now when they, now that's they is the rulers and the elders and the scribes who had put Peter and John in jail... When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Now here, saying that they were uneducated doesn't mean they were illiterate, doesn't mean they were stupid. It just means they were not professional speakers. They weren't lecturers. They weren't, you know, people, philosophers. They were just ordinary people. And so what stood out is that these, these are not the sort of people that would normally stand in front of rulers and elders and scribes and tell them to repent. But they did because of their boldness. Peter doesn't hold back. Verse 19, here's Peter's words. To these men who had the ability to put them in jail or set them free, he says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge. Verse 20, for we cannot but, we must speak of what we've seen and heard. Again, the compulsion. Peter says, we must preach. You can put me in jail, you can kill me. And they could. But he says, we must preach because there's, a, there's a, a compulsion that is stronger and more powerful than anything that these authorities could do. How did the Holy Spirit grant them such courage and conviction, such boldness? 
Well, they're making here a rational decision. Because these rulers and scribes and elders, they have the power to put these guys in jail for the rest of their lives, or worse. And yet they say, we must listen to God, because God's power extends not just to this life, but to the next one as well. God has the power not just to bless and curse on, in this life, but for eternity. And so they make a rational decision and say, I'm going to obey God in this instance. Notice what happens when these guys get released from jail. Verse 23, like the leaders here, they can't do anything because the, you know, all the people have just seen that miracle. And so they're in love. They think Peter and John are amazing. They, they almost like are worshiping them. They say, well, we can't punish them right now publicly. So they let them go. They release them. And Peter and John go straight back to their friends. Again, what do they not do? They don't lock the doors. They don't flee for Egypt. They don't pray for protection. They start worshiping with their friends. As they're worshiping, Holy Spirit calls to their minds a psalm from the, from the Bible, a portion of the Old Testament, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was written by David, the great king of Israel, and it's foretelling the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. Here's how it goes. He starts out, Why did the Gentiles, the nations, rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord, against Jesus, against his anointed? Those words were written a thousand years before Jesus was born. And here they are worshiping God with those words because they recognize something critically important. And they spell it out in verse 27 of chapter 4. It says, For truly... For truly in this city, that's Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your anointed, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That's everybody. Everyone in this city, in Jerusalem, was conspiring against Jesus. But then listen to what it says. What were they doing? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And that is why they are bold. Every one of the conspirators who together plotted against Jesus, they did two things. First, from their point of view, they successfully carried out a plot to execute a blasphemer. From God's point of view, they successfully carried out his plan to rescue his people from death. And they were bold. Let me tell you how much you and I need to have that kind of courage. The journey of sanctification, the Christian life, the becoming more like Christ, the journey that you're on is never safe or easy. Paul said along the way, there's fighting without fear within. And we need courage to persevere. We need the boldness to obey in the face of great opposition. Boldness here does not mean loud and obnoxious. It is this joyful, humble confidence that God has already won. And though it may look like evil's threatening to swallow you up or swallow up the church, or, or you know, you can rest. You can trust that he is in control. If God is calling you to something dangerous, to a, maybe a part of the world that you might spread the knowledge of Jesus, you can be still knowing that he will be exalted in the nations. 
you feel called to plant churches or discipleship groups or share the gospel in this city, you can rest knowing that there are many people who are yet to believe in this city. It says that in Acts chapter 18. You can look it up. It's written. Because God is in control, because God is in control, you obey him even when it's dangerous. Because your choices matter, pray and act with boldness. This is the most outstanding part of the believer's prayer. It's the very end of Acts chapter 4. That even though they're under threat, again, they don't pray for safety. They don't pray for God to smite their enemies. They pray for more boldness. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Peter and John have just been put in jail for the first time. And you read ahead into chapter 5, they're going to be put in jail again. And that time, the next time, they get beaten as well. These are not empty threats that they're looking at. But as these early Christians, they, they did not have any doubt on how to act, on how to respond. They said, help us not be afraid, but to continue to preach the gospel with boldness. Where boldness is found throughout the book of Acts. That's why this church exists today, because way back when, men and women prayed and acted with boldness. It's what Christian courage looks like. They asked God to confirm their preaching with healing and signs and wonders, things only He can do. And guess what happens when they pray this way? Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. That's what Christian courage looks like. It's to not stare at the opposition, but to stare with both eyes at the, at the face of Jesus, the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. We look at God, we acknowledge His providence, and then we pray and we act reality, God's reality, into being. For these disciples, it's an immediate response to their prayer. They prayed for boldness, and then, with boldness, they kept on speaking. They asked of God in prayer, and then they went out in light of God's authority, and they answered that prayer with their lives. C.S. Lewis wrote this, he was commenting on something that the philosopher Pascal had said. He says, God, said Pascal, instituted prayer in order to lend to us, his creatures, the dignity of causality. In other words, prayer works. But, and then Lewis says, but not only prayer, whenever we act at all, he lends us the dignity of causality. For he seems to do nothing of himself which he could possibly delegate to his creatures. I wonder what God has delegated to you to pray for, to act. What dangerous calling lies ahead of you that will drive you to pray for boldness and courage like these disciples did? How might you pray in such a way that your prayer becomes the means by which God accomplishes his ends? How might you act and live in such a way that your activity 
is the means by which God accomplishes his purposes. My aim in this message is simple. I start out telling you about the two ditches. What happens when you fall into this ditch over here of fatalism? You, you just, you know, you put your feet up because nothing really matters. There's a, there's a word for that, a spiritual laziness. I want you to kill that off. I want to kill that off. God does not call you to be lazy, but to work, to pray, to act with boldness because your choices matter. The ditch over here, open theism, that, your choi- that, that only your choices matter, that you know, God might respond, he might not, leads, you, leads us to worry, fear, anxiety, and I want you to kill that off as well. I want to kill that off in me. The fact that God is in control means that even the fiercest opposition against his people and against his will is futile. It will fail. The fact that our choices matter means that we get to go out and act and bring God's reality into being. There's no such thing as effortless Christianity. It is not a thing. You may have heard that. It's not a thing. If you want to get strong, if you want to get ripped, you go to the gym, you train. If you want to be godly, if you want to serve God, you want to see the gospel spread, you want churches to be planted, you work. You work hard, you set goals, you pray, you act, because God has granted to you and me the dignity of causality. Let me mention in briefly in closing why I think this is so urgent for us to understand, because I believe that for some of us, the road to heaven, the road to the new heavens and the new earth is paved with difficulty, with even blood and tears. Because God has ordained for us to suffer. Same, similar kinds of things that these early Christians did. Same kinds of things that Jesus did. There are lots of people who pray for God's kingdom to come on earth, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lots of people. There are not many people who recognize that for that to happen, many Christians must suffer. There's difficulty. And without the sovereign Lord upholding you with the word of his power, you would crack. I would crack under the pressure. But see, like Peter, like Paul later on, I pray that you might consider the dangers ahead and that you would be able to count even difficulty, even trials, even suffering as joy for the sake of knowing him and seeing him known. That you would be willing to risk everything for the sake of knowing a God who will never, ever leave you whose love for you will never fail, not even in death. Let's pray. Lord, you rule and you reign over every creature, over every place, every decision. And yet you've granted to us, your servants, the right to know you and through faith in Jesus to be called your children. Lord, would you look upon the opposition that is stacked against us fighting without fears within, and grant to us, your servants, 
to continue to do your will and to speak your word with boldness. Take our lives. Take our lives and let them be set apart for you. Lord, would you confirm your word to us tonight? Lord, by the power and the grace of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.